0: You have a Bible, and I hope you do. Would you go with me to John's Gospel? John's Gospel, chapter 10. John's Gospel, chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 22 to the end of that chapter. Verses 22 to the end of that chapter. But before I do that, I want to set up my Bible reading and remind us when we come. To church and we are confronted with the reality that we're as different as there are people here and you've all experienced life in very similar yet uniquely different ways that was reflected even in Daniel's prayer a good friend of mine named Ray Ortland always began his services at his church with these words and I want to read them as we come to the word of God and hopefully this will all makes sense But if you're here this morning, and I would say to you, to all of you who are weary, whether that's mentally or spiritually or emotionally or physically, and you need rest, and to all of you here this morning that are maybe mourning and long for comfort, to all of you who maybe you feel worthless and you wonder if God cares. To all of you who have failed and you desire strength, to all of you who recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, to any of you here this morning who are hungry and you're thirsting for righteousness, I want you to know that Calvary, as a people, not as a building, we open our doors and we offer welcome to you this morning In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that as our attitude and hope, let me read God's word beginning in John 10, verse 22. This is the word of God. And at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. And it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And so Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And so Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. So Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John, that's John the Baptist, had been baptizing at first. And there he, Jesus, remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. I want to ask you, by way of a question, the theme of my sermon is what's your response to the amazing grace of Jesus? Now, I want you to think about life, how often you encounter different people. I know this is something that as a pastor I've encountered many times, but have you not encountered people that will come to you and they're passionate and desperate and they want answers from you and you then proceed to give them the answer and they don't like what you have to say or they completely didn't listen to what you had to say and continue to ask you the same question over and over again? The President of the United States Franklin D. Roosevelt experienced this, and the story is told that he grew tired of smiling that expectant presidential smile and saying the usual expected words when he had White House receptions. So one evening, if you know anything about Roosevelt, he decided that no matter what, he wanted to find out if anybody really listened to what he was saying. So as each person came to him with an extended hand, he flashed that big smile and said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. That's worth laughing at. Many responded with comments like, how lovely, or it's nice to meet you, Mr. President. However, one diplomat responded softly, leaned in and said, I'm sure she had it coming. So here's my question, whatever you're going through today, good, bad, ugly, or indifferent, how often do you and I actually listen to the Word of God and what it's actually saying to us? How often do you read the Bible and listen to what it says to you about you? About life? About the world? About the situation you're in? Maybe I could put it this way to all of you, because I think every one of you have experienced this at one point or another. What's that one burning question you wish Jesus would answer for you? If you could ask him just one question, what would it be? That's, I think, the place where the Gospel of John is taking us. This passage, Jesus is asked directly, Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. And you need to realize while I read that text, he states that he is the Messiah. And if he stated that, you need to realize it could have been perceived, as we saw in the passage, an act of treason or blasphemy. And it's obvious the Jews were annoyed that Jesus wouldn't simply say yes or no. So let me just walk you through this and see if I can bring this into application for whatever we are going through this week. Notice first the setting of the question in verses 22 and 23. Now again... I wish I could break you of this habit. We tend to do this where we read our Bible and we just think that everything is continuous action. And we don't understand that when you read from one verse to the next or you turn a page, that massive amounts of time have gone by. And that's the case in John 10. When you go from verse 21 to verse 22, two months has gone by. Just by reading the same chapter. From verse 21 to 22, two months, eight weeks. Eight weeks. Sixty-odd days has gone by. So the dust has settled from the prior confrontation, right? In chapter 9, where Jesus heals that man born blind and all of the fuss that had it stirred. Commentators are divided about whether Jesus left Jerusalem or stayed. I tend to think he left. I actually think he might have gone and spent a couple of months with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who will incidentally reappear in chapter 11. Because they didn't live that far away from Jerusalem. He left for a little while. Maybe to that home nearby. Now, I don't think he went far. And as you're going to see in a moment in the passage, Jesus is fresh, still on the minds of people. And I say John wants us to feel this uneasy tension. And as Jesus comes back and he's walking in the winter in that Solomon colonnade, definitely Jesus dials up the tension. But I want you to try and imagine this scene. John gives us a couple of markers. He says that Jesus is in Solomon's colonnade. It was a massive, massive portico on the far side of the Temple Mount. He says it's winter. And the reason that's important is likely because the wind would blow up through the Judean wilderness. And often it was very cold and blustery out on that Temple Mount. And many people would find shelter in Solomon's colonnade. But notice he also tells us it's the feast of dedication. That's how we know it's two months removed from the earlier feast, the feast of booze that we' talked about in chapter 9. This was also called the festival of lights. Now you need to realize that because it's winter and we have a couple of markers here, we're actually in the month of December. Jesus is now only three to four months removed from the cross. There's also a connection in that location. Because Solomon's colonnade will also start to reappear again in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 5. And this is because that's where the early church gathered. And likely because this is where Jesus would commonly gather and teach people as well. And again, if you think of John's purpose in writing this gospel, I'm going to quote it again, John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. And I've told you, John selects seven signs and seven statements of Jesus, and he uses them for this purpose. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the result being that you'll believe and have life in his name. So in our passage, which is close to all of what John wants you to know and see and make a decision about, But there's something else at play here. This Solomon's Colonnade was very popular because this is where the rabbis from the different synagogues smattered throughout all of Israel would gather and they would have tables. You can see this phenomenon even in current Israel. If you go to the temple wall, the western wall, or what we used to call or call commonly the wailing wall, where the Jews gather to pray because that's the closest they can get to the temple because that's now occupied by the Dome of the Rock. Alright? Underneath that to your left is what's called Wilkinson's Arch. And you can go under that and actually even get closer. You can line yourself up how they've done this with the geography of where the temple was and where the holiest of holies was, so where the Ark of the Covenant was, so where the very presence of God would have been. And when you go under Wilkinson's Arch, there are all of these tables that represent different synagogues where rabbis gather and they teach and they expound on the commentaries and the writings. And different people from those synagogues gather around them. It's organized chaos. I've been there four different times. It's a madhouse, a din of competing people discussing things. And the more you people you have around you, the more influence, the more, more, more sought after you are as a rabbi. And so here they are in this place, Solomon's Colonnade, where all these rabbis would have gathered, respected leaders of Israel's faith. This is where people got their questions answered. This is where they made sense of life. This is where they were challenged and given reasons for why life is what it is. (laughs) And here's Jesus. And I can promise you this He's not on the approved list. He's got no table. And yet, he commands the biggest crowd. Not only do most of the people, the common people, gather around him, but after a time, you'll see rabbis starting to drift away from their tables and they start to surround him. And this is what's happening. The Temple Mount is still quite busy. The feast is supposed to be a happy time. But with it comes this tension. Believe it or not, the Festival of Lights, I'll explain it in a minute, was supposed to not only be a happy time, it was a celebration of deliverance and freedom. It lasted to the very day, and we are reading about it. But this festival that was supposed to celebrate deliverance and freedom does come with a little bit of irony. Because in this temple, on this day, the shadows of the fortress of Antonia, the big Roman fortress where the prefect would sit who, who represented Caesar, shadows over the Temple Mount reminding every visitor that Israel is under Roman rule. And John tells us that this feast of dedication is happening. Now what you may not know is that is not one of the feasts from the Old Testament. That's not like the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a modern feast by our standard. This began as what you and I know today as Hanukkah. That's why it was called the Festival of Lights. That's why it takes place in December. There are many heroes in Israel's history, but only few are truly idolized. Some of them are Abraham, Moses, King David... Well, there's standouts of a wonderful heritage of prophets and kings, but there is one other person that now takes that Mount Rushmore of idols for Israel, and it comes from those 400 silently years in your Bible from when Malachi ends to Matthew begins. A guy by the name of Judas, and he is a Maccabean. You see, there was a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. He captured Jerusalem in around 170 B.C. And what he does was so grotesque to the nation, while they're under his rule, he sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple, setting up a pagan altar in its place, and erecting a statue of Zeus in the holiest of holies. He effectively tried to stamp out Judaism. He brutally oppressed the Jews. And under his direction, Jews were required to offer sacrifices to pagan gods. They were not allowed to read their Old Testament Bible, and copies of it were destroyed. He was a savage man. In fact, Antiochus and Epiphanes means the insane one. After three years of guerrilla warfare, the Jews, under the leadership of this man, Judas Maccabus, the son of Matthias, would lead a revolt. And take over. And where this feast comes from is that he was being pursued and he got holed up in a cave with one day's worth of oil to burn a light. And the story goes that God intervened and gave him eight days of light from a day's worth of oil. And this allowed him to outlast Antiochus Epiphanes' soldiers. And then he was able to reconnect and rally the troops and they drove him out and he was given the nickname Judas the Hammer which is still celebrated for eight days. While we do our 12 days of Christmas, our Jewish friends will celebrate the eight days of Hanukkah. And that's why it was also called the Festival of Lights, because lights and candles were all written. That's where you get the Hanukkah candle. And that was because they believed That because of this, it reminds them of their right to worship their God. That God had shone upon them. It was a celebration of national deliverance. It was a deliverance for God's people, for God's temple, even for God himself. So here is Israel, celebrating deliverance, looking for a deliverer. And here comes Jesus, walking in the colonnade. And now, secondly, look at verse 24, the demanding question. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I don't want you to think that this was a nice gathering. When I read my passage, I wanted you to get it. The word gathered around him means to press in on. They were demanding an answer. I want you to catch it. Here's Jesus during the Festival of Lights, this deliverance ceremony. Israel once again under Roman occupation looking for a deliverer. And they want to know if Jesus is claiming to be that. Are you our political rescuer? Are you a revolutionary? And friends, this is the great dilemma even to this day. I can tell you in all my trips to Israel and with all the blessings I've had to have many Jewish friends, these are the types of conversations that I have with Jews and Gentiles alike even into the 21st century. I have heard people tell me that Jesus is a Gandhi-like figure. I've had people tell me that Jesus is a male Mother Teresa. I've had people tell me he's a wise guru. I once had a very sincere Jewish friend tell me, Steve, I believe that Jesus was one of the greatest revolutionaries of Israel. You guys just make too much of him. You see, Son of God, the Messiah... This group is demanding now, tell us who you claim to be. What's your deal? We don't want any more miracles. We don't want any more parables. We don't want any of these things. No more object lessons. No more riddles. Just tell us. Now it's interesting because up until this point, John has gone out of his way to have Jesus explicitly tell us who he is. All the way back in John chapter 4, verse 26, remember he says to the woman at the well, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Remember in John chapter 6 when you get to the end of it and everybody leaves Jesus after he won't feed them anymore? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And if your memory is good, you'll remember just back a chapter ago in chapter 9, after the man born blind has been cast out of the temple, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, this I bring up because I want to nail in on verses 25 to 30 and make this make sense to us because I know I'm speaking to largely a group who would claim to be sheep of Jesus. Because notice the amazing salvation answer to the demanding question. Jesus declares in verses 25 to 30 with amazing grace what only he can offer. Notice it. It's eternal life. But watch now. It's not just an offer only he can make. It's a promise only he can keep. But notice in verses 1 to 21, all of what Jesus said earlier was about sheep hearing Jesus' voice and knowing him. Here in 22 to 42, it's about Jesus knowing his sheep. We know Him because He knows us. We love Him because He loves us. In fact, Jesus will explicitly say this in just a few chapters. In John chapter 15. John Newton, who wrote that great hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, said this. When we are grieved and ashamed of our sins when we are affected with what we read and hear of him, of his love, his sufferings, and his death, when we see and feel that nothing but his favor can make us happy, then we may be sure the Lord is near. Read those words. Personalize them. Now you might be saying, Okay, Steve, man, I got to tell you, you must have got a good night's sleep because you are worked up this morning. And we get it. You've been talking about this for weeks. All right. But I want you to notice how Jesus answers the question. They want to know plainly. And look at what he says in our passage I told you, and you do not believe. I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus claims. To have clearly told them. Yet here they are demanding an answer. And again, I asked you this earlier. Have you experienced this? You get asked something. You answer the question. But the person or the group still looks at you like you're not telling them anything. This is the difference. Now listen to me. If you want to take notes. This is the difference between hearing and understanding. Which, by the way, Jesus expands on in Matthew chapter 13. When he gives that parable of the sower and the seeds. All groups... According to Matthew 13, hear the offer of the gospel, but only the last group hears and understands. It's a key word in that passage. And watch what Jesus does next. He actually confronts the crowd. Look, he says, I've done the works of my Father. I've done them in God's name. They bear witness about me. Now think about what he's done, according to John. He turned water into wine at a wedding Something that's never been recorded in all of the history of the Bible. He healed the nobleman's son from a distance, by the way. Remember? The son's not even present. He just tells him, Your faith has made your son whole. Go, he's whole. And the nobleman leaves and he meets his friends and he finds out that the moment his son got healed was when Jesus said it. Then he fed 5,000 with a few loaves and some fishes. He walked on water. He calmed a storm. He caused a paralyzed man who had been paralyzed in John 5 for 38 years to just get up and walk. And then lastly, in chapter 9, the sixth sign of the seven, he caused a man born blind to see that was never done. And in chapter 11, he will rise a man from the dead. That's been done, but not like this, because this guy will be dead and had been in a grave for four days. But look at verse 26. Jesus tells the crowd the cause of their lack of understanding. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. (laughs) He says to them, look, on top of the wonders and signs I've done, I've walked around here for now for the better part of two years telling you that I am the bread of life, that I am the light of the world, that I am the door to life, that I am the good shepherd, but you don't believe any of this. And so Jesus explains the difference between hearing and understanding. And you'll see that in verse 27 and 28. You see, true sheep, true disciples, true followers of Jesus, Christians are those who trust him, those who lean on him, those who will hear and apply what he says. And they're marked by something. Look at this. Notice they have sensitivity to Jesus, they hear my voice. They fellowship with Jesus. I know them. There's obedience to Jesus. They follow me. There's life in Jesus. I give unto them eternal life. There's assurance from Jesus. They shall never perish. There's security with Jesus. No one shall snatch them out of my Father's hand. Church, understand, the reason this applies to you and I is because the DNA of a believer versus a non-believer, now get ready to this because I'm going to say something profound, okay? While it is true that one must believe to be saved, you and I need to realize this, salvation does not rest on our faith but on God's grace, amen? Now that was a hesitant one. But I want you to see that again. Your salvation does not rest on your faith, but on God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is so important. Watch this, because I know many of you can quote this if you're here and been around church, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now I want you to understand that word it refers back to everything I've just read. For by grace you have been saved through faith. All of that is a gift from God. And the reason is because it's not a result of works. So that anyone could boast. If it was about your faith, you could then at least feel good and say, well, I'm glad I've got it, even though my friend doesn't. He says... For we are his workmanship. That word workmanship in the Greek is poema, where we get our English word poetry. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, where Paul says, we are the poetry of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, notice, beforehand. That word beforehand means before he ever said, let there be light, that we should walk in him. See, Jesus can't say what he does in verses 25 to 30 And even more, have it come to any salvation if it rests on us in any way. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. It's a gift, not a work. The old Presbyterian pastor J.M. Boyce says, if we earned it, it would be wages. If it were merited, it would be a reward. But eternal life is neither of these. It is a gift, which means that it originates solely in God's good will toward men and women. So he says, My sheep. How many of you will admit you've watched Finding Nemo? Wow, good of you. That's good. My favorite character in Finding Nemo are the seagulls. Because the seagulls always do, remember? Mine, 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 mine. <laughs> Jesus says, God looks down on you and goes, Mine, mine. You're mine. Notice in verse 29, My Father has given them to me. Literally, Jesus is saying, They are gifted to him by God the Father. Notice, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. That's what we call the effectual call of God on them. That, that it's heard by those who actually belong to God. Remember back in chapter earlier in chapter 10, verses 1 to 21, when the sheep uh shepherd comes in and he calls his sheep, he would have a, a song he would sing, or his tone of voice, or he'd do a little like a and they they would know, his sheep know that's their shepherd. That's what he says. And he says, I know them. Believe it or not, this is our justification. We're known by God as his children. And they follow me. That's our sanctification. Past, present, and future. We come to the one who knows us, and we continue to come to the one who knows us. See, this is the part I think Christians miss. You're not perfect. You have questions and doubts and you fail and you struggle and you look around you and you get scared and life happens and most of life doesn't make sense to us but when you follow Him, you know. Listen, I can trust Him so I'll keep going back to Him over and over and over again and God never gets tired because He grants us eternal life. He says, I love them. I give them eternal life, and notice, and they will never perish. (laughs) Richard Phillips says, salvation by grace is the greatest news that one could ever hear. We cannot earn salvation since no good work can erase the guilt of our sins. We cannot buy salvation since we have nothing to offer to God We do not have a right to eternal life since our whole race fell into death by the sin of Adam, yet we can still have eternal life by receiving it from Jesus as a free and unmerited gift of God's grace. That, church, is good news. Hmm. That's why you've heard me say, stop trying harder and believe better. Jesus knows you. He chose you. He loves you. He comes to you. Lives for you. Dies for you. Rises from the dead for you. Reigns for you. Intercedes for you. He's coming back for you. He knows your heart. Knows your weaknesses. Knows your fears. Knows your sin. Knows your struggles. Knows your questions. Knows your doubts. Jesus knows everything. And by the way, already planned for it. Has a plan for it and for you. And is already at the end of your life. So, mom and dad, with your wayward child, or husband or wife, with your struggling marriage, or young person trying to make sense of life, or you with that unexpected bill, or where the finance is going to come from, or those of you trying to worrying about raising children, or some of you st- uh, worrying about having children, some of you are worrying about your grandkids. Listen, God's got this, <laughs> so you really can rest. The older I get, the more I'm realizing. I sometimes listen to God, but I don't hear Him. You see, how do you receive this gift from God? How do you know you are a sheep of Jesus? Now let me see if I can contradict myself. Ready? In a word, faith. George Michael was right. You got to have faith, the faith, the faith. All right? But notice it's a faith of hands. We humbly, trustfully, thankfully accept what Jesus offers to himself, to us, himself. Listen, don't go to God saying, Lord, I want a good marriage. Lord, I want you to save my child. Lord, I need more money. Lord, take care of my bills. Lord, give me uh, the victory over depression. Lord, help me with my anxiety. No, just go to Him and say, Lord, I need you, which we sang, by the way. Because what does it profit you if you get everything you want but you don't have Jesus? (laughs) Wasn't it Jim Elliott who said, What does it matter? When they, when they asked him, Why are you going? And he said, What use is it to give up what I cannot keep to gain what I cannot lose? Notice it's faith of ears. We hear from Jesus and we respond to him. Jesus tells us to confess, so we do. He says, Repent, so we do. Jesus tells us to pray, so we do. Jesus tells us to love, so we do. Jesus tells us to trust him, so we do. Jesus tells us to do these things, and he knows we won't do it perfectly. He knows we'll have struggles. He knows we're going to wrestle with our faith. In fact, the Bible is filled with action verbs. Exercise, train, learn through experiences and trials. It is any wonder that John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, would put a verse like, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that taught brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. You're not going to just go, poof, ta-da, I'm the ultimate Christian. No, you know what? Some of us are stupid sheep. And God says, I love you. You don't have to impress him. (laughs) Our youngest granddaughter just started walking. And she walks across the living room to me. And she literally looks like Mr. Potato Head. Her head is way too big for her body. The only thing that keeps her on her head, on her feet, is the size of her head matched with the size of her stomach. And she waddles to me. And I feel nothing but sheer delight. Why do you and I think we somehow have to impress God into loving us. He does. With your big head and your big spiritual belly wobbling on your feet, trying to figure out balance in life, trying to put one foot in front of the other as you Wander your way to him, falling more than you succeed in walking. And all he does is put his arms out and says, Come to daddy. Because faith is also the faith of feet. Jesus says, My sheep, follow him. The old hymn says, Where he leads me, I will follow You see, the doubter stands still, the skeptic never moves, the agnostic never budges. How many times have we seen this crowd in John chapter 10? These religious leaders, they confront and demand and argue and debate, yet nothing changes their heart. In Acts chapter 24 and 25, you'll read about three other men, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, who all go before Paul while he's imprisoned in Caesarea. And one of them says, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The other one says, Much learning has made you mad. The others want a, I want a big show. They are personal examples of what it means to be so close and yet so far away. But look at 28 to 30. I can't imagine a more clear statement from Jesus and how He saves and keeps and He will see us all the way through. He says, I give them eternal life and no one can take it away from them. No one snatches them out of my Father's hand. So here's my question. (laughs) If you're doubting, why are you letting Satan scare you? Why are you letting the world worry you? And why are you letting yourself down? Just trust Jesus. By definition, by the way, eternal life can't be anything less than that, can it? If Jesus can say, I will give you eternal life, but somehow you can lose it. Does that make sense? Or I give you eternal life, but you're able to put a stamp on it and say, return to sender. If he says you will never perish, it must be everlasting life, the last I checked, lasts everlastingly, right? Right? So I'm not saying, folks, have to be made, that people have not made professions, that people have not claimed to be a child of God, only to turn tail and run back to the world. But I think we get the answers to that in Matthew 13. Look at what Jesus says. It'll be on the screen. Jesus explains this. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, not hard ground... That's the one we know. That's the ones that don't even hear the gospel. He said, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet, notice, has no root in himself. Now put that with John 15. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He says, but endures for a while, and notice this, when tribulations or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he or she falls away. As for the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but notice now, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now notice, as for the what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He or she indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty, So how do you know the difference between a true profession and a fraud? Two things. Not only is there a public confession of our faith, but then the consistency of life is when you fail and you will, the true believer runs to God versus the fraud runs from God. The pop culture $24 million question is, is Kanye West truly saved? Well, here's the deal. God knows, and if He is, He'll persevere. And in the meantime, I believe God can save anybody, even a former rapper. I'm not into hip hop, I'm not into rap, but you should check out the album. It's not bad, especially the Chick fil A one. (laughs) All right? Don't you find it fascinating? You know, in the Bible, there was a guy named Saul. He got saved. And when he went back to Jerusalem, he needed a guy named Barnabas to prove to a church that he was actually saved. He didn't serve him up a resume. He just said, like Phil Collins' song, take a look at me now. This is what we have to see. Romans 8, we read in our call to assurance, nothing can separate us from the love of God. In Romans eleven twenty nine, Paul declares that the promises of God are irreversible. That's why, by the way, Jesus adds this little clause in our passage, they will never perish. So my friends, you can't have it and lose it. You can't get it and then give it back. Salvation is all a work of God through Christ kept by the Spirit. It's truly the greatest display of the entire Godhead at work in our lives. What hope? What peace? This is what joy is all about. This is a peace that passes all understanding. God the Father not only loves you, He adopts you. Then He makes you a joint heir with Christ. You are the ones whom God the Father promised to Jesus. Hebrews tells us that this has to be true because God cannot lie. So if you take anything and go away from this, I don't care what your life is like right now, if you believe Him, you are His. And God can't and won't take that away from you. But the tragedy is very quickly in 31 and 33, they rejected the response to his question. They pick up stones. And by the way, in verses 31 to 33, if you write in your Bibles, next time you have some JWs or Mormons come to your door, take them to these verses. Anybody who wants to tell you that Jesus was less than God, take him here because why else would the Jews pick up stones to kill him? They said, here's why we want to kill you. You being a man, make yourself God. But Jesus calls them to trust him. You see, they wanted God on their terms. Now watch now. They, Even though they're needy, hurting, desperate for help, it's not that they don't realize they don't have the life they want. It's rather they'd rather the life to have on their terms than on God's. You see, they cling to the dream of deliverance when the deliverer is right there in front of them. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't panic and show fear. I mean, really, why should he? He's the creator of the universe. He looks into the faces of those he's created. He looks into these angry, demanding faces. And the only thing I could think about, about how to put myself here, is how many of you that have been parents and you've had your two-year-old when you wouldn't give them ice cream for breakfast say, I hate you. And what do you do when that happens? When your children say things like that at you or worse? Because the insult doesn't cause you anger but rather pain. You pity them. You long for them to know how much you love them. You long for them to know the path that they're going down is only going to hurt them. You see, this is not the season of God's wrath. It's the season of God's grace where He extends His mercy. Because in verses 34 to 38, you see the grace filled appeal to the rejection. He quotes Psalm 82. And I don't have time now this morning, but basically he quotes that psalm and basically when he says, if you have those that are called gods who the word of God came, he's basically saying, look, you look up to and you think someone is a person representing God if the word of God has come to them. And he's talking about all the prophets from the Old Testament. He says, I'm not just someone that the word of God came to. I am God. Remember at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when the crowd were fascinated because they said, this one speaks as one who has authority. Jesus didn't speak like I'm speaking to you. I have no authority except to point you to the Word of God. If Jesus were here, He is the Word of God. And this is what He does. But then there's the hope-filled conclusion in verses 40 to 42. Because we're told that He leaves them, goes down to probably somewhere in Judea, just on the outskirts of Galilee, where John used to baptize. And people come to him and notice they had heard the word of John but now they're listening because they said John didn't do any works but everything he said about this guy has come true and the closing remarks of chapter 10 are and many believed in him there so here's my question will you Will you? Are you afraid? Will you trust him? Jesus calls to know him as truth. Jesus calls to follow him as his sheep, and Jesus calls us to share him with others. Are you listening and hearing? Are you listening and responding? Are you listening and following? Are you listening and trusting? If you will, if you are, then you're going to have life. You're going to know life and it'll be abundant life no matter what happens in your struggles. Jesus loves you. Jesus knows you. Jesus promises to give you eternal life and then guarantees it with His life. (laughs) Oh, to rest in Him. Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. What will you do with the amazing grace Jesus offers you? Let's pray and our music team will come and close us. Father God, again, I beg of you that my friends and family will have heard my heart in this and will heard a sermon better than I am capable of preaching. Lord, I love these people in front of me. And I know that there are people here and they're hurting. Some are struggling. Some are doubting. Some have questions. Lord, some have a foot in the world and a foot in church. Some are trying to make sense of life. Some are trying to overcome when it comes to either relationships or money or purpose. Some, Father, are frustrated with where they're at in this season of life. Some are terrified about a loved one. And Lord, I can relate I fear. Lord, I went to an event this week where I was literally surrounded by people that took joy in laughing at you being mocked. And it scared me. So Lord, I'm not here praying to you now or preaching because I am better than the people in front of me. I'm here because I'm just like the people in front of me and I want them to know that the only source of peace and making sense of life and being able to walk like my granddaughter wobbly on my Christian face putting one foot in front of the other is because I know your hands are extended to me and you're telling me every day, every moment of every day come to daddy and I just beg of you that this church would do it. So as we close in song, as we head out into another blustery week, filled with the emotions and the challenges that wait us out there, may we know that you love us because you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.